0: Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Luca Willett, and I am a section head for the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biannual journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues related to the content of our upcoming issue of the journal via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting two guests on the podcast today, Professor Joshua Tucker and Professor Gregor Popekulis. Dr. Tucker and Popekalish recently co-authored a book, Communism's Shadow, Historical Legacies and Contemporary Political Attitudes, which looks at the political, economic, and social views of post-communist citizens. Dr. Tucker is currently a professor of politics, as well as an affiliated professor of Russian and Slavic studies and data science at New York University. Most of Professor Tucker's work and research has looked at comparative politics, with a particular emphasis on Eastern Europe and what was formerly the Soviet Union. In addition to Communism Shadow, he has also written the book Regional Economic Voting, Russia, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and Czech Republic, 1990-1999. Professor Pope Eczelis is currently a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University, where he is also the co-director of the workshop on post-communist politics. He also has work on comparative and international economies in Eastern Europe and Latin America, and done research on electoral behavior and political parties. Lastly, in Communism Shadow, Dr. Pope Escheles has also published his book, From Economic Crisis to Reform, IMF Programs in Latin America and Eastern Europe. Professor Pope Escheles and Tucker, thank you for joining us today.
1: I just wanted to start off our interview by discussing your shared work, "Communism Shadow, in which you seem to focus, and please feel free to elaborate here, on answering the question, how a communist past matters in shaping political attitudes among people in post-communist states. Could you explain to our audience maybe first what are post-communist states? Why don't we start off with you, Professor Popelakish, and then then we we'll move to Professor Thomas. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, by post-communist states, uh, in, in this context, we mean the, the countries of Eastern uh, uh, Europe and uh, the former Soviet Union uh, plus Mongolia, who so who were communist until circa 1990 and then transitioned to something else. So there are other countries that are formerly sort of, uh, formerly sort of Marxist regimes, which do not uh, do not really figure directly uh, into this partly because some of them are still communist, like uh, China and Vietnam, and uh, in other cases, because the nature of the of the sort of communist regime was very very different. There are a few places in sub- saharan Africa that have marxist inspired regimes, but without the sort of full apparatus for indoctrination that it uh, this european uh, as far as i so I guess it depends on how far uh, how uh, long of an explanation, you wondered how we got to this, uh, but, you know, Josh Hacker and I uh, knew each other well before we started working on this as we were friends, and so part of this came out of uh, discussing our experiences of growing up uh, on different sides of the Iron Curtain back in the 1980s, and speaking for myself, part of this was driven by, you know, having grown up uh, uh, in uh, Romania under uh, school and being struck by this tension between the fact that when I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who liked Shoshesky, and yet, at the same time, after the fall of communism, a lot of people would espouse views and, and vote in ways that were very much in line with what the previous regime had done. And so this tension between, on the one hand, indoctrination, and on the other hand, rejection of this communist uh, past and communist mindset, was, was one of the things that, that was, was sort of on my mind uh, as we started watching. When we first um, started talking about this, I was sort of taken by the fact that in, in the, two, the early 2000s, there was a lot of interest in uh, in, in the effect of communist legacies. Now, in the when, when we were in graduate school in the 1990s, there was a bit of a, of a there were a lot of people really interested in what things were going to look like in these post-communist countries after the collapse of communism. And there was this kind of overarching sense people used to talk about the blank slate. This was an opportunity. You could rewrite the rules and get totally different sets of outcomes. And if you were smart and you were an economist or a lawyer and you knew the right rules to write and you knew the right sort of incentives to try to set up, you could design systems that would, that would work in these kind of idealized ways. And by the time we got to the sort of mid 2000s when we started talking about this, it was clear that this sort of blank slate approach wasn't wasn't correct, that there was something from what had been there before, and that these were loosely being called legacies. In the mid-2000s, we were beginning to see quite a bit of work being done about communist era legacies, but they had kind of two features to them. One, they sort of tended to focus on institutions, so like the level of success of democracy. Rigo wrote this amazing paper uh, about this, and this is kind of how we started talking, because I was sort of interested in the work that he had done about these legacy effects on levels of democracy. You also saw stuff on like independence of central banks and other institutions. Um, but the other thing was that most of the work that existed at the time seemed to either be kind of almost sort of just those stories about particular countries and particular outcomes that happened. And then the explanation would be, well, that's because of the communist past and people would draw a kind of really nice you know connection to it. Or they'd be these comparative studies But they would only be comparative studies involving former communist countries, and they would be looking at how things were different in these communist countries. And we started thinking about two things here, which was, one, my background was in political behavior. So I was interested in things like attitudes and how individuals you know, interacted with politics. So we started thinking, well, what about the effect of communist legacies on behavior, on attitudes, as opposed to just on these sort of larger institutional features? And the second thing was, we started getting this idea in our heads, which took us down many long roads, right? But that if you really wanted to understand communist legacies, and we were comparativists, who did comparative politics, we needed to be comparing post-communist countries to countries that were not post-communist countries. And and while I was reading your book, um, I was impressed by the sheer comprehensiveness of your work status set. And it must have been quite a Herculean task—the construction of this so thing. It, it was very impressive. And for constructor, I was wondering if you could speak to that your analysis, um, and and Professor Papalegis too. Please, please, Papalegis, please feel free to jump in here um, on the strengths and weaknesses of your analysis. Um, how did you go about restructuring sort of that? How did you come up with like these or how were your How are you going to tackle that issue? Yeah. So I so I will say that definitely the. You know, the start for this comes with Griego, who introduced me to uh, the World Values Survey, which became definitely a love hate relationship over the years that we worked on the book with this survey. But thanks to the amazing work of Ron Engelhardt at the University of Michigan and his colleagues, there existed this data set where they had been running waves of studies of attitudes of people around the world in lots of different countries going back through the 80s. But crucially for us, there were four waves of this survey. In the 1990s and 2000s and it's continued since then but our book ends in in 2009 before the great recession and so we started looking through this so first we had sort of theoretical questions that we wanted to answer we can talk to you about the sort of theoretical arguments we were developing currently but since you asked about the methods we started looking through this world value survey and we were interested in attitudes about democracy about markets about gender equity about social welfare and fortunately there were questions that fit into all four of these buckets on this world value survey. So what we began to realize was that we had data on attitudes for people who lived in post-communist countries and people who lived in the rest of the world. And we could begin to see if these attitudes diverged in ways that um, would be, would predict from what we knew about sort of Marxist Leninist theory and Marxist Leninist attitude and going back to what Rico said a moment ago about indoctrination, right? So did these, views that the differences between the West, between the post-communist countries and the rest of the world diverge in the way that we expected. Now, once we found that they diverged, and we can talk about the findings, then the question became, why did they diverge? And that led us to have to collect all sorts of other data that was not already in this survey. Um, and that was a ton of aggregate level data. And I'll let Rigo speak a bit more about uh, how we went about that process. Yeah. So so, uh, and, and just a quick uh, follow up on on the world Value survey because uh, as, as as Josh uh, mentioned, obviously this was important to be able to to sort of have this uh, this uh, crucial comparison between ex communist countries and, and other countries. That it would allow us to address questions such as you know is this a function of the specific legacy of communism as opposed to maybe a different type of authoritarian legacy versus just being a middle-income country, at the periphery of some uh, more larger, more powerful uh, Western democracy and so on, right? So so trying to disentangle uh, some of those things. But at the same time, it also presented these challenges of, uh, and this this is a critical critique of uh, cross-national survey work of, you know, if you ask people are you in favor of democracy, do people really mean the same thing in Germany as they do in uh, Romania, as they do in, uh, you know, Angola or in uh, Bolivia, right? And so, at some level, that is that is not something that that can be answered in in a sort of uh, in any absolute uh, way. One of the things we try to do, and we do it in one of the chapters, is to see whether people have different conceptions of democracy, what types of things they thought were important for a country to be called democratic, and so on. And so. One of the things we found there is that uh, that uh, people in ex-communist countries had different views of democracy. They tend to emphasize more some sort of the sort of social democratic uh, uh, components uh, of it, like the, say, taking care of you and uh, and so on. But then we were able to also show that despite these differences in conceptions, even controlling for those, people in Eastern Europe uh, were still more ambivalent about democracy than, than people. Else. And so again, that's that's the starting point of just establishing the difference. And then the question becomes, okay, and this, these are our two models basically in the book, right? Is it living in a post-communist country or is it living through communism? Mm. So somebody who was born in uh, 1989 in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe did not really live through communism. So whatever attitudes they have are either whatever air they breathe and water they drink in, the, in these countries or, you know, whatever they might hear from their parents. Somebody who is my age and was AD when communism fell had a certain type of communist socialization, and then somebody who's my parents' age had that plus another 30 years, right? And so the way we try to get at this is to is to start looking at these differences between uh, the different age cohorts that became a proxy for how uh, much and what type of exposure uh, different people had to uh, to communism. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's that's a it's, it's it was a very impressive analysis to read over in your text. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe more directly just touch on the conclusions of your text, sort of like what w- what did you find? Did you find anything that was really surprising? So, I mean, the big picture conclusion from the text, as Grigo said, we had two different. We ended up with sort of testing two different theories, right? One theory was, as Grigo said, this this exposure to communism. It was the effect of living through communism that led to these differences in attitudes. And the other one was that, well maybe it was just the conditions on the ground in these post communist countries. So just to like give an example, the economies really collapsed in these countries in the nineteen nineties, right? And so when we found that people in post communist countries had less support for market economic systems. Well, that could have been just the case that anyone who saw their economy collapsing would be less supportive of market economic systems because they're not as cradling; and they don't provide as much support for people as alternative models. And so, this is why we tried; we went about collecting all this kind of aggregate-level data to try to see if we could, in effect, make our difference go away when we say control for economic conditions, or we control for political conditions on the ground. And I came at this, as you mentioned early on, very kindly. I had written a book about economic voting in post-communist countries. And when we started this project, I thought for sure, once we took account of economic conditions, that would explain everything. And then that would be our answer. It would be this, people were living in post-communist countries that had a very, you know, certain set of circumstances on the ground. And then we would have to disentangle to what extent those circumstances on the ground were a result of communism, what they were a result of post-communism and other things. But actually, for me, the big surprise, and this is the beauty of doing rigorous social scientific research, is that you correctly specify your hypotheses ahead of time and you set up tests to test those hypotheses. Sometimes you're surprised by the results. Actually, often you're surprised by the results. And in this particular case, we found there were pieces of that second theory that would do something here or something there, uh, but overall, there was much stronger support for this living through communism hypothesis. And so that was a big surprise to me. The other thing that was super interesting, although perhaps not as surprising in retrospect, was that while we found support, while we found like the precondition to do the study, that there were different attitudes in the post-communist countries towards democracy, markets, and social welfare, exactly with what we would expect from a legacy of communism, less support for democracy, less support for markets, more support, for social welfare, for an interventionist state providing social welfare. We didn't find what we expected to find, which was more support for gender equity. Mm. And g- equality had been a big tenant of communism. But of course, for people who actually study gender in the Soviet period, this is, um, this may not be nearly as surprising because this was an area where there may have been you know, talking the talk in terms of gender equality, but there was a lot less of kind of walking the walk. And in and in reality, there was a lot going on that whereas there were some things that led to improvements of gender equality under communism, there were sort of a lot of question marks. And so it was super interesting to me as well that we did not find um, these differences, these overall differences in attitudes towards society, gender equality that we found in these other three cases. Interestingly, though, we did find that people who had lived under communism, who had been kids under communism, I think it was, yeah, people who had been kids under communism tended to have stronger feelings about living through communism as a child increased your support for gender equality, but living additional years as an adult didn't which is also super interesting. I don't know, Rigo you want to talk about, you know, the school. Well, I, I was just going to jump in. Yeah. That's, a, that's a thing that I particularly like because communism uh, collapsed when I was 18 years old. So I got the early socialization and not the late one. So by the predictions of that model I should be more, uh, more supportive of gender equality, which, you know, it's, uh, that's, uh, you know as the things go, that's, a, that's a, good, a good place to end up. But, but to sort of go back to, to sort of things that, again, were sort of surprising or not. so. Uh, uh Josh talked about uh the, you know the expectations about some of the economic uh, factors in my case, you know I grew up uh, in a household that was very intensely anti communist and you know we would listen to the voice of america and to uh, to radio for europe uh every night and and so my expectation and a lot of the other people that I know, my expectation would have been that in some sense at least for some subsets of the population um the experience of living under communism might make you more anti-communist, right? You overcompensate, uh, for, uh, because of the, the sort of dislike of this, this regime. And what was interesting is that throughout our analysis, we found almost no, we find almost no evidence of people becoming more pro-democratic, and even any subgroups, right? So sort of people who are, say, or, you know, more educated or younger or, or whatever. So, the most that we find, and there we do find differences, is that the indoctrination effect is much stronger among some groups than among others, but it never flips in the other direction, right? So, we find that, for example, that Catholics and people who are are more religious are less affected by communist indoctrination, which is not that surprising. We also find some evidence that for people whose parents were educated uh, under communism, that that, sorry, before communism, that that acts as a as a, as a a sort of countervailing factor. And then at the country level, we find that in places that were more developed at the outset of communism, in other words, the Republic, uh, and Hungary and Poland and so on, there the influence of uh, of communist indoctrination was weaker, in part because there was a sort of pre-communist education that counteracted it, but arguably also because for those people, communism was not this sort of pro, this, this sort of harbinger of, of, of socio-economic progress, but in fact was a sort of source of repression. Right, and so so in those places, indoctrination was weaker, but it almost never completely disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I, there are a lot of surprises in your book when I read it too, and and anyone listening right now, it's um, it's it not only um, a very uh, intellectually stimulating, but it's also quite a good read. So I would encourage anyone listening right now to pick it up. Um, but I just want to shift gears here for a moment um from your book to discuss maybe the current state of democracy in Eastern Europe, which isn't as great as one would have hoped it would be. You know, back at the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and I just wanted to, I wanted to talk about there being a lot of coverage of Ukraine, but I think it's important to consider the implications of the crisis on regional democracies. Um, Professor Grigore, what do you see as sort of the short and long-term effects of the invasion of Ukraine on Eastern Europe, on Eastern European democracies? Do you see the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a major fall in a larger part, in a larger trend of democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe, or do you see it as something slightly different? And of course, Professor Tucker, please, please feel free to jump in here. Yeah, so, you know, obviously, you know, trying to draw any kind of conclusions after the first three weeks is... Uh, I would say that these are obviously very, very sort of different phenomena. We, we do see this uh, this uh, process of uh, erosion of, of democracy, at least in some countries uh, in the region. Interestingly, some of the erstwhile uh, front runners, it's like uh, Hungary, uh, uh, Poland, right. And incidentally, just sort of going back to the book uh, a little bit, what's what's sort of interesting about that is that these are countries that did very well in terms of democratic outcomes in the, in the 90s. But when you look at the attitudes of people, the differences between Hungary and Poland on the one hand and places like Bulgaria and Romania or, uh, or some of the former Soviet republics were not nearly as pronounced, right? So in some sense, it, there's, there's a way in which there, there was a relatively, uh, re- relative hollowness of democratic, uh, support in these places, which may explain why the backsliding happened in places where we might not have expected. Now, to your question about uh, about the impact of uh, of uh, the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, I think the immediate impact is actually for the most part positive on the neighboring countries, and that has something to do with the fact that uh, generally the the parties that were pro-Russian have been these kinds of uh, ethno-populist uh, anti-Western uh, parties, very often sort of right-wing uh, French parties. And some of them directly, uh, financed by, by Russia. And while some of those got a boost in the context of COVID, that right now being pro-Russian in Eastern Europe is not a good party. basically on the defensive. And in fact, what I think one of the really interesting questions is, uh, Hungary, uh, elections in, uh, in a month. And Orban, who has been much more pro-Russian than, uh, most other, uh, European governments is Having to walk a very fine line, and this may just help put the Hungarian opposition uh, over over the edge. So, so, so there there is genuine uh, sort of reason for hope in the Hungarian case. Um, Poland is, is is different. It's it's another sort of anti-populist uh, uh, government, but it's uh, fiercely anti-Russian for historical reasons. And so, in that sense, that government may actually get reinforced by the current prime because they're they they look good. They're standing up to Putin. Uh, the places where it's uh, where it's sort of really uncertain and where I'm in mean, some sense the most worried about it, uh, is parts of the Balkans, uh, because there, as we've seen, there have been you know big protests in uh, in uh, Belgrade, the were the pro-Russian and so on, and so it is possible that Russia will try to, to use some diversion there to, to sort of mix things up, and, uh, and so that it could sort of further destabilize parts of the Western Balkans. Yeah, I mean, I see a couple things quickly. One, I mean, I just just to push back, I wouldn't call it a crisis. I would call it a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. Like that's what happened. An army went in and has tried to level a country right now. The second thing is that, I, you know, I, I do think I mean, it's been interesting in terms of the backsliding that we've seen in, in East European democracies that Grigo was talking about just now. And people have come to us and said, oh, is your book an explanation for this? And I'm always a little bit hesitant in that regard, because in some places we've seen uh, more democracy than, you know, people might have expected, including Ukraine, but also including Romania, Bulgaria, places that you might have thought would have backslid more than, you know, have, have, have been, we've seen backsliding in other places. I do think what is what it raises is a very interesting question, which we tried to get into a little bit in our book. You asked about, like, the strengths and weaknesses of our analysis, right? The, the strength of going big was, I think, we we really did give a comprehensive answer to this question. And I really believe the findings that we found in this book. The downside is that we were kind of limited in what was on this world value survey, and it was limited to questions that had to be asked across all of these countries. And it leaves open a very interesting question, which we did in one of the chapters in some supplementary field, tried to go into in Hungary, actually, of all places, which is how much of this is transmitted? So this, like, this lack, this let, being less supportive of democracy, of people who live through communism, does this get transmitted to their children? And so one fascinating question that I think that they're asking is, like, did this, um, you know, this, the parental generation having less support for democracy than we find in the rest of the world, did that make the children of that generation potentially more susceptible to these kind of right wing populist appeals? that? Rigo was just talking about a moment ago that we've seen in a lot of the region, not because it was a direct line from communist propaganda, which you would think would be kind of a contra populist appeals, but because there wasn't this kind of like civil civicness base where the sort of civic religion of democracy that you see in many Western countries. So I think that remains a super interesting question to ask uh, to ask for future research in this regard. And, you know, and in terms of, you know, I wouldn't call, you know, again, I wouldn't call Ukraine democratic backsliding right now. Like, I mean, you, you know, there is a possibility that, you know, that Ukraine emerges from this with a, you know, with, with, um, with you know, nationalist forces, in, you, you know, greatly strengthened and people more concerned about national security than they are about anything else. And you wouldn't blame anybody for coming out of this in this regard. On the other hand, it is the democratically elected president of Ukraine. Who has emerged as the hero of the moment and, in fact, Ukrainian democracy has emerged as a hero of the moment because, because, you know, he was elected with broad support from the country, right? Like he got almost as much of the vote as Putin did and Putin rigged the election and Zelensky didn't rig the election, right? And moreover, Zelensky himself has given lie to a lot of the claims that Putin made before this election. Before the, sorry, before the invasion, that this was a country heavily divided, that Russian speakers thought the government was a government of Nazis, which is a really weird claim to level at a Jewish president, right? That there was a government of Nazis and drug addicts and that they would just lay down their arms and join the invading Russians and, and welcome them as liberators, because Zelensky actually got, in a democratic election, He was actually more popular in the Russian-speaking parts of the country than he was in the heavily Ukrainian-speaking parts of the country. So, in some ways, the fact that Zelensky has emerged as such a kind of international figure and such a rallying figure within Ukraine, I think, is a real, um, is 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 actually shows the sort of you know the, the value that democracy can have of having a genuinely popular ruler who by of winning this election showed that he was popular with large swaths of the population, which has been absolutely crucial in the events as they've unfolded in the last few weeks. Yeah, that's great. And first, I, I want to apologize. I I I thank you for correcting my diction there. Yes, it is an invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, and I want to follow up that just in our, in our last uh, couple of minutes here. I'm talking about questions themselves. Um, and the unasked questions we have here sort of in the west um, we're sort of trapped in a in western influence maybe a lot of us don't go and read you know the Moscow Times um, and I'm interested um, to hear from you professors um, what do you see as the important questions regarding post-soviet space in Ukraine that we in the western media haven't really touched on enough yet what questions are we not asking that we should be asking right now about uh, the post-soviet space um, the russian invasion of ukraine um, and, and, and Russia in general. Um, so I, I thought about this a little bit, and I don't know that the, that the problem is so much that we're not asking the right questions now. I think that the problem is that we're not asking, that we're not paying enough attention to these places unless something blows up, right? So, so you know, Ukraine had had the Orange Revolution in 2004. Everybody was interested in, in Ukraine. Then we forgot about them for about ten years. Then the Euromaidan and the and the first Russian invasion comes along. Suddenly everybody's interested in uh, in Ukraine again. Uh, and then people forget about it again. And I remember being at a, at a conference in 2017 with uh, a sort of mix of uh, it was mostly EU uh, politicians and some academics and so on. And I was there as a sort of I, mean, I don't want to say the token East European, but I was one of the few people who was who was sort of working on this region. And I gave a presentation on Ukraine. On these sort of issues, this was sort of two, three years after the, the Russians had taken over uh, Crimea and uh, Donbass We had just recovered from the global financial crisis, and they were trying to figure out, you know, where are the new uh, sort of challenges and and uh, threats coming from? And one of my one of my uh, uh, take home messages there was. We should be watching places like ukraine because uh, ukraine a lot of the problems had not been solved either in terms of security nor in terms of the reform of the state and, uh, and so on and i have to say the reaction was polite but not very interesting, right they wanted to go back to talking about uh, relationships between france and italy and uh, germany and uh, brexit and uh, and so on and so the, the interest was not quite there and so then the next time a crisis comes around we realize wait a second we neglected to build up the Ukrainian military to the extent that we should have. We neglected to think about what might happen if uh Putin decides to go and grab another uh, chunk of the country. So we then ask these questions, but we ask them too late. And uh, then, that sort of precludes us being able to actually do something uh, based on the things that we actually sort of, in some sense, know. So I will, I would echo everything that Rigo said on that note, but I'll I'll just add one more thing to it, which is in a similar vein, which is that I think we got um, preoccupied with Russian uh, interference in the 2016 uh, US election. And it played into this myth of Putin as the sort of master puppet master who could do everything and with everything he did was genius and brilliant. But we were really focused on what he was doing to us in the United States. And and I think the more we've done at the Center for Social Media and Politics here at NYU, we've done a lot of studying of the Russian trolls and what they did in 2016, who was exposed to them, what was the impact of their exposure. And I think like a, a lot of things on, in social media and the Internet, we got overly focused on the bright, shiny thing that was in front of our face. And the larger story, actually, what was happening with media was what was happening with media inside Russia. And now in the last three weeks, you know, the question I'm getting from reporters all the time is, well, what do Russians think about the war? What do Russians know about the war? And what we've seen is, you know, a gradual, you know, we we were both lucky, or I don't I was lucky to spend time in Russia in the 90s and the 2000s. It was, you know, a vibrant place. There was loads of information. And even as of very recently, you know, after, after Putin came back to power, it was still this kind of deal that, okay, the television did come under the control of the state, but there was still a thriving internet and an open internet for people who wanted access to information, who wanted to be part of the of Western dialogue. And that this has just been gradually over time, this space of independent media has been shrinking within Russia to the point where in the last three weeks, it has almost entirely been choked off. And yes, there are VPNs, and yes, people are still on Telegram, and there's a lot of things happening, and that's an overly broad statement. But I think from Grigo's point, again, like. This idea that, that Putin could magically jump in and, and, you know, change elections in the United States is folly. Is and it, it, it was, you know, overly, you know, overly fetishizing the power of Putin to do things that he couldn't really do outside of Russia. But maybe it led to not enough attention to being paid to what was actually happening inside of Russia. Uh, and I think that that sort of like overlaps with what Rigo was saying about taking our eyes off of things, being overly focused on the things that affect us. And then waking up down the road and saying, you know, it, I just think it's, it's inconceivable to most Americans how Russians could be supporting this war, uh, in that the Russian government is engaging in in Ukraine. And, and so far it seems like, you know, many of them are. And that has to do with the media environment. And, and, you know, and I think we have, you know, when people talk about China, they focus on what's going on inside of China. When people have talked about Russia, they focused on Russia's new hybrid warfare techniques and and what the last three weeks have shown us is that we still have to focus on the guns and ammo and the and the bombs and the mortars and the things that blow buildings up and as as, as glitzy as the hybrid war is we have to think about as Rika was saying the, the security implications around around wars that actually when people get killed by because missiles are falling on them and, and I think that the, the information environment in Russia In this case is actually potentially in the long run more important than, than Putin's sort of vaunted disinformation strategies, which really fell apart very quickly in the first week of the war, um, overseas outside of Russia. But inside of Russia, I still think there's, there's an awful lot of importance that's going on here and it's a very, very bleak scene right now. Uh, And I I think that's, that, that, that is a, that is a very good point. Uh, in the vein of, of sort of things that, that we don't focus on enough, is, and I think particularly in the, in the sort of post Soviet and East European context, is I think we tend to forget, especially in the US, how long historical memories there are. Uh, they, they are long, they are not necessarily accurate. Let me let me be very clear about that, right? But but uh, as we saw in the in, in the Balkans uh, in, in the mid 90s, as we've seen all over the place, these kinds of old Conflicts and so on are being fought out over and over uh, again, and part of what's what's happening here, and of course Putin has tried to use a whole range of of excuses from genocide to uh, chemical weapons to nuclear weapons to justify the invasion of Ukraine. But one of the things that he has uh, that he has uh, mobilized is this nostalgia for the Soviet Union, and at some level the nostalgia for the for the Tsarist Empire. Right. And so there we in you know, a way it brings us back full circle to this whole question of, of uh, uh, legacies, right? Some of these are communist legacies and some of these are even pre-communist imperial legacies. But these are these are things that essentially in, in one way or another get reproduced partly because of uh, transmission within families, and partly because politicians occasionally will will sort of Reheat and and re-stir these these kinds of uh, these kinds of debates, and they are essentially there to be activated in a crisis like this. Right? We actually did a survey uh, in uh, the 2020, sort of a year and a half ago, where we asked uh, people in Russia about territories that they have lost and how upset they are about them, and so on. And there was concern about Ukraine, but there was concern about a whole bunch of other uh, uh, Soviet republics, and. This was correlated with age, right? Older people were more upset about uh, this stuff, again, because they had lived through the, the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. And so these are, again, they're, they're sort of almost subterranean currents that we don't see very much in, in, during normal times. And then something like this blows up and, and suddenly we see that there is this uh, sediment there that was, that was sort of writing, writing.
0: That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast, hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you for listening, and thank you for Professor Tucker and Papaliches for the opportunity to speak with them. Be sure to check out their book, Communism's Shadow, Historical Legacies and Contemporary Political Attitudes, which can be found on Amazon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.